We are all about worthy causes, and today's shout-out is to Changemakers Resettlement Forum for Refugees. This is Cassie's shout-out because this organisation is incredible. They envision a New Zealand where New Zealanders from refugee backgrounds can participate fully in Aotearoa New Zealand life. And their principle is nothing about us without us. So people from refugee backgrounds should be involved in all stages where policies and services are being developed by them. They're an amazing organisation and you can donate to them at www.crf.org.nz and they are Cassie's choice of shout-out today. Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have gone before and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space wherever quality podcasts are found. Hello, I am Jess. And I am Tim. And... Welcome to Sex in Space. This is our mega project that explores sex across all of its infinite dimensions. Yes, uh, and what we want to do is turn the awkward into the straightforward and have heaps of fun while we're at it. (laughs) Who are we listening to today, Tim? Today we're listening to an interview which uh, I did all on my own with the lovely Cassie Hartendorp. Um, Now, heads up in this one, um, I want to uh, hold my hand up and say that some of my pronunciation of Tadeo Mari is still in its infancy. Um, <laughs> so um, we're kind of on a bit of a journey with that one, uh, similar to the sex journey, I guess, um, where, yeah, we've only taken a couple of steps forward. <laughs> and um, so please bear with me on that one. Um, Cassie is Ngati Rokoa. Uh, she grew up in Wanganui uh, and is based in Pornecki, which is Wellington. Uh, she's a renowned community activist and organiser, working in both areas of youth, takutapui, anti-racism, workers' rights and housing. Mm. She's a former youth worker who supported LGBTIQ plus young people and works on the Te Whana Whana Trust. Uh, a Takatapui community group. Uh, Cassie has written essays for the spin-off, uh, Pantograph Punch, and Vice on gender, diversity, uh, Whakama, and being queer and Māori. Mm. Uh, it's a really, really, really insightful um, and interesting conversation. Um, yeah, really, really hope you enjoy it. I know I did. So let's get into it. And now, the interview. Hello. <laughs> Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you for help for having me here oh, today. Thank you for coming. <laughs> yeah, this is a real um, it's a real privilege um, to have you here today. Um, yeah, I just um, I've been on this kind of interesting journey recently uh, of discovery and um, coming from this kind of point of view of being a kind of white cis male and delving into these these worlds that I just like you know, completely new to me. I mean, my sex mm. education personally was pretty pretty minimal in the UK and all the rest of it. And so coming here and, and learning um, learning new new things is, is 
opening my mind, blowing my mind, <laughs> and generally, generally great. And I mean, the point of this podcast is to um, to have to have conversations and to bring, you know, to bring stuff out um, and share it um, as appropriate, basically. So, um, Togu Tapui, tell me about what that that word means and and means to you and is that is that mm, mm. <clears throat> that's a great question because i think takatapui means a lot to different people but it also has a really specific history um and that history is is that it was once used as a term to be able to define a companion of an intimate companion of the same gender okay and it was found um, and reclaimed by someone called Ngahuya Te Awe Kotuku, who reclaimed this term after finding it in old dictionaries. Um, and there's lot there's stories that are attached to it. Um, there are iwi-based stories attached to it, um, but that's not my story to tell. Um, and but what has happened over the years is that that word takatapui has been used to reclaim um, both existing within a world as being Māori and being sexuality Mm. or gender diverse. And, you know, some people do translate it as being like gay, lesbian, transgender, transsexual, bisexual, and so on. Um, But it's really crucial that that Takatapui is holding within it um, a cultural identity as well. Mm. So, which is to be Māori and is to be Indigenous. Yeah. Um, but it's been reclaimed and it's now used as an expansive embracing term for many people within the rainbow or LGBTIQ community who are also Māori. Um, it doesn't work for everyone, but I really like it because in a world that does um, that does discriminate and have oppressive structures around sexuality, gender and race and indigeneity, I find it very useful to be able to name yourself into being, mm. and name yourself into existence and have a word that can be heard and understood by other people and other people who might be like you. And if that means that somebody feels a sense of belonging where before they did not, then I think there is a, a use in having a word yeah, like that. Yeah. But there's plenty of Māori who do not use the word takatapui. Um, there's plenty of transgender Māori who do not use the word takatapui. They have other words they use. But, yeah, what it means to me is is connecting me in to a whakapapa, to a genealogy of people who have come before me mm-hmm. and knowing that there would have been people within my family who would have walked differently in the world. And I also, um, it, it also is about showing my appreciation to the people who came before me within the Takatapu community. And in particular, I'm thinking about um, the lesbians, the gay men, the trans men, the whakawahine, the trans women who... Um, paved the way for us younger ones to be able to exist as mm. we do now. So when I think of Takatapui, it reaches back into back. that. Yeah, yeah. Whakapapa, yeah. So when you say it was kind of, you say it was reclaimed? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's from old dictionaries. So a 
colonial sort of exercise in translating into into English or understanding native language is that I'm not sure what the original I mean probably the original dictionary may have been written by um by Pakia and by um European writers um there is there is some debate as to what that word originally meant like for example was an intimate companion someone that you slept with, had sex with, um, was it a really close friend? There's still discussion and debate about what that word even meant back in the day. Yeah. But it has enough in there, I think, for people to want to reclaim it, to use it in the now to describe our identities. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, think it's, I think it's beautiful. I, I heard an interview um, with... Um, Elizabeth Kelly Kelly. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, and she was talking about um, some translations, um, and I suppose in a similar way to and this is a story of my mother, who lived here in the seventies, was used to love telling me, you know, the cutting off of the penises of the statues and you know mm. stuff like that. That kind of um, you know the colonial sort of whitewashing of of Maori culture um, and. What I sort of picked up on when listening to Elizabeth talk was um, that that similar thing was happening to to a lot of the kind of I think it was poems. Yep, yep. And um, these parts, some of these poems have been re-found and um, and sort of re retranslated. And what they're finding is you know much deeper meaning to some other wor- some of the words um, and um, exploring you know some of the themes of um, perhaps like. Um, you know, gender, sexuality, and stuff like that. Um, and it was, yeah, it blew my mind as to how how kind of colonial our look mm. has been. Can I speak to that? Yeah, please. Quickly? Yeah, like, um, because I've thought about this a lot, and in particular, I've, you know, um, I've had Maori scholars say things like you know we don't have many records of sexuality or gender diversity within Aotearoa pre-colonial um, and I just think that we've even lost the way how to look for those mm. we've lost the lens for how to see how people would have lived and in, in more ways than just our sexualities and our genders you know um, to me, it doesn't make any sense that there would be so many different indigenous cultural genders and sexualities that were quite normal um, around the world and especially within the Pacific. The Pacific, as you probably know, is like a vast myriad of, of, of so many different um, gender identities in particular and they have names and there are words that have been passed down over generations. They have roles that have been passed down over mm-hmm. generations and so, uh, you know, we came from the Pacific as Māori so then it makes me ask, makes me question, are we the only Pacific society who did not have that kind of gender diversity? Yeah. Did we leave it in the Pacific? That doesn't make any sense to me. And the more that I talk to people and the more that I learn to read between the lines and to know where to look, mm. the answers are there. Yeah. So um, recently I was looking into uh, gender diversity within uh, 
pre-colonial Aotearoa and and, um, colonial Aotearoa as well and finding these little remnants in in strange places like for example Ngahuia Te Awakotuku talking about the tourism industry here and how um, there's a story that she tells at Whakarewarewa um, in Rotorua and Europeans would come and be guided by Māori. It was a really booming economic tourism industry in that time. And there's a passage that she talks about where she says that, um, you know, this tourist who came here is saying, I was invited to go and sit in the family circle among, you know, the Māori and there was this this lovely Māori belle there, this beautiful woman, and, um, you know, and she ended up offering me some tobacco and it was all very well. And then to my surprise and shock, it turned out that she was actually a man. And it was, there's so much that is just in that story, and there are more stories of that around the Pacific, mm-hmm. of European um, sailors or people who are recording things, telling stories of meeting people they thought were women, but then it turns out that their gender was a bit more fluid and then being shocked or disgusted about it. And the interesting thing is that what I got from that passage was you had a you had a woman you had someone who was living as a woman, expressing themselves as a woman, um, and that they were accepted within their family circle. Mm. They were there. Yeah. They weren't booted out into the bush somewhere. They were in the family circle. They would have had some value and yeah. you know, completely for for numerous different things. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I sort of see there are or there seem to be gendered roles in in um, in kind of that in the Maori culture and the sort of family and also in some of the um, uh, what's the word for it? But in in some of the sort of the the origin stories and stuff like that. If, like you said, you read between the lines, you can sort of see that these are the these are the bits that have been picked out mm. as being acceptable. In terms of yeah. your own sort of journey and, and education, um, more specifically, I mean, one of the reasons is for this podcast is we um, feel there's this, this massive gap in, in people talking, you know, and one of the, the things is, you know, the education formally or, or otherwise or, or you know through family and etc um can be lacking in in certain places i was just quite interested in in sort of how you got to where where you are now but like what your what your education was like um did he have a any um sort of formal education or even even at school like what do you remember that that experience what your you know sex education was did you get introduced to the concepts of of gender or anything like that in in any formal way or was it as bad as mine? <laughs> well, I do I do remember um, sex education classes because they were quite funny because we went to a all girls same sex school. Yeah. And there's a kind of dynamic I think that would happen in our classes where we could all take the piss a little bit and have a laugh about it. Um, and it was in Wanganui, Wanganui Girls College is where I went. And, yeah, oh, there was no – I remember being the person nominated to put a, a condom on a banana in yeah. front of the class and everyone thought it was hilarious. Like, it was just this big joke. <laughs> I don't know whether or not it was because I was doing it or what. Um, 
But it was, I mean, when I think about it, right then and there you're being taught that the only kind of sex that you're going to have is as a girl or a woman is with someone with a penis. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the only option. Um, being at a same-sex school, it was not, you know, I, the way that I felt at least was that if you're at a girls' school, you're either sluts or lesbians, maybe oh, both. Yeah. And so I think that people did a lot to try to not be associated with those um, and probably more about not being associated with um, being a lesbian. I think there were lots of proud, promiscuous girls at our school, and as they should be, um, but there were no out and proud lesbians or right. queer girls or so on. And it definitely wasn't a part of the education system at all. It wasn't even a possibility. And it, it felt usually like, and it might be the same for most people, that sex education was about um, how not to get pregnant totally. for the next few years um, and just hold off that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there was nothing about pleasure there was nothing about what our own bodies even are, and there was nothing about all of the joys and possibilities of what sexuality can mm. can hold. Um, in terms of for you, like, um, I suppose transitionally, or like, have you have you have you had any like major shifts um, in your understanding, or like in sort of learning learning more about like when did you start learning about the Maori culture and and that. Um, sort of stuff is that something you've always been interested in or has that no so um, I was adopted as a baby um, into a completely Pakia family or Dutch and British and um, in that time it wasn't really talked about me being Māori Um, and I can make guesses as to why that is. I don't know all the reasons. Um, and I didn't have any contact with my Māori whānau, with my family as well on that side. And what I realised, I think, I mean, I was told when I was about maybe 13 or 14 that I was Māori. And it it meant something to me, but not not. And I didn't know what to do with that. Mm. I didn't know what to do with that information. I was given a scrap of paper that had um, from my from my birth parents that had my iwi affiliation on it, um, and I just thought to myself, okay, if it's important to them that I knew this, then that must be important. But I didn't know what to do with it. I, yeah. I had no idea what to do with that, and so um, yeah, it's really been quite. I think it's been a journey of of holding a lot of different things because um, I've often felt like I don't want to disrespect my adoptive parents and their culture and their upbringing. And I've been amazing parents. Um, But also being like there are more elements to me than than what is my adoptive family. And like juggling that is really, has been a a definite tension. It's very interesting that... um that you're right. That that note, or the, you know, the little bit of information that you got was was clearly there for a for a reason. That's, yeah, that's quite an amazing little sort of seed, isn't it? You and know. there's been a few of those. There's these little seeds, and you know, but most of the time, I I actually remember thinking when I was a teenager, I'm gonna put that away for later. 
that's what I thought. I'll put that away for later. And, you know, not many people can do that because I look white. I look Pakia. You know, I can move through life and people don't think that I'm Māori. And so there is not a pressure on me to know my papa and to know my culture and to know my genealogy than people who, you know, are what is seen as visibly, stereotypically Māori. Yeah. So I had a privilege to be able to put that piece of paper away and put that away. Um, but I also knew that in terms of my adoption, I was not psychologically ready for following that path mm. and that I would know when the time would be. And that time was in my mid-20s and I started to reconnect with my adoptive family um, and with my hapu, my um, my wider extended family and my marae, our family, ancestral meeting house and things like this. But it all uh, has it has been a massive shift because yeah. it's it's about who you are and where you come from and what I what sat with me was that um, I I I felt like there was a reason that I hadn't really been told that I was Maori or nurtured as Maori like for me there was something about that that was very political. Um, I was like, this isn't a coincidence. Mm. It's not a coincidence that I just happened to not know anything about that side. And then as I grew older, I realised that I was one of the last babies um, to be adopted in a certain kind of way. And that before me especially, there are whole generations of Māori babies and children who were taken off their families and their parents and put into Pākehā families and what I realised was that within within the project of colonisation you know the colonisers would have been very happy and content and pleased with me never knowing or acknowledging my mildiness mm -hmm. because that would have been a slow cultural genocide yeah and so within Aotearoa and you might know a lot of other countries were colonized before us and the way that I've been taught is that they the British people had more of a a nous and an understanding about how to go about these things and so we often literally to this day people in law schools and Pākehā law schools here get taught that we had a more humanitarian colonization right um, and that's part of, you know, we had a treaty. Lots of places didn't have treaties. We're very lucky Indigenous people. And so a lot of that has meant and required, I've also been taught <laughs> by other people, by Māori, that actually colonisation is very expensive and the British government couldn't justify sending in an expensive military to come in and colonise us in the way that other countries were colonised because they had no, they didn't have yeah. enough money to be able to sustain a militia, right? Yeah, yeah. So they had to utilise other different ways and a lot of that relied on missionaries and a lot of that relied on actually just completely, first of all, taking our land off us um, and colonising our minds and destroying our connection to who we are and mm. our genealogies. And there's a street in Wellington called Featherston Street, and the person who that is named after had a quote where he basically says, our job is to smooth the pillow of the dying Māori race, and so the world will look well upon us. And what I realised in that time is that 
the colonisers wanted Māori to all die out and they would either do that on purpose and cause it or they would do it in a way where, for example, you just don't take any action. You see Native people dying and you take no action Mm. and you allow them to just die off so that they can inherit this country and this land, which is ultimately what they wanted. And when I talk about Pākehā, I talk about a very specific group of people. It's not everyone. There were lots of Pākehā who came here who formed beautiful relationships with Māori and many who were socialists as well and actually saw communism and socialism in a lot of the ways that we worked here and were interested in that. So I'm not talking about every single Pākehā here, (laughs) not all Pākehā, (laughs) but um, what I will say is the people in charge there is an ulterior motive for us to die out so they could inherit our land. Mm. And so then for me, when I think about my adoption, I'm like, far, it is actually a very symbolic and political thing to to live in my mildiness and honour my ancestors so that they did not die in vain. Mm. That's as simple as it is to me. And so... I don't spend a lot of a lot of Māori spend a lot of time wondering, are we enough? Are we Māori enough? Are we this enough? Are we that enough? And I try not to go there because I believe that the tool of colonization is for us to constantly be paralyzed by the idea that we are not enough. And so we just disappear. Mm. We just slowly disappear. And I can't I can't do that. No. And now, this. Tashidelic intergalactic lovelings, I'm Ambigua, therapist at Barbarellis, the finest gratification destination in the entire Virgo constellation. All sentient beings are welcome at Barbarellis, and all desires fulfilled, all currencies accepted. However, there's only one area we won't compromise, lubrication. We find nothing smooths the path of true loving like never dry. Distilled from the juice of the sapient analipsis shrub. From their own plantations on Epsilon Sea. Never Dry allows your fantasies to flourish in a frictionless environment. You can concentrate on your own selfish, narcissistic outcome in complete confidence with Never Dry. We use nothing else. And for this space-time unit only, mention this ad at Barbarella's and get a low polish absolutely free. Love long and proper with Never Dry. And now we return to your unscheduled program. What I will say is, you know, the colonization of of everything and especially ourselves and our minds um, means that we have lost our original tikanga or our ways of being and our ways of doing things. And so we have what is often called imposter tikanga. And so we've now got replacements of our tikanga that we as Māori accept as truth. And even those are based on colonial lies 
unfortunately. And that's the hardest part. That's the hardest part because we are in a period of really incredible cultural revitalization that is only possible by the Māori who fought fearlessly before us, mm. right? And I am a beneficiary. I am a beneficiary of that struggle and that I can now learn about tikanga, about Māori laws and ways of being. And to me, when you go back to those actual laws and ways of being, a lot of stuff just strips away. It falls away. It no longer, if the most important thing, you know, as Māori was papa, it was always papa. Our lives are about papa, and that is about social relationships. It is about interconnection to the earth, to the deities, to each other, to everything. It is just a constant lens and map of social relationships, right? And it is about maintaining our papa at all times. It is about continuing people being able to live and flourish and exist. And if that was the primary lens by which our ancestors lived, it does not make any sense why we would leave behind someone who does not sleep with someone of um, yeah. the right sex or gender. Because the most important thing was papa. The most important thing was belonging and the collective and the strength of the collective and everyone had something to contribute. And so why would you disown some a young queer kid yeah. or a young trans kid, which I see constantly I see this constantly as our own whānau Māori rejecting our own children. And I just don't believe that's what our ancestors would have done because every child was and is precious mm. to papa. Yeah, so yeah. why would you cast them away? It I, makes no sense. No, it doesn't. You really wonder what, yeah, where that where that's come from. I think you're right. I think it's a, it's a mistelling of, of your own... Origins, isn't it? It's, um, yeah, yeah, and it's dangerous when we start to believe them and wield them against each other, which goes on a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of. Do you know? Does that does that get spun, or do those stories get get sort of um, justified from a religious point of view or a cultural? Point of view, or uh, how how do they get justified in 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 lots of different ways? Right. But I mean, I think a case in point is Destiny Church, um, which is pro- probably the biggest church of, that has mass numbers of Maori in it, mm. um, and they stood against the civil union bill. Um, and when that was being passed and have consistently made statements, their leaders have made statements and they are Māori, they've made statements against, against homosexuality mm. very clearly. And it is a religious, a religious thing. Um, but in all honesty, I don't know and I can't speak for where all of that comes from. All I know is that what I try to do is just constantly keep leaning into the goodness yeah. that exists within our takataupui communities to just keep moving towards that. And so I don't spend as much time moving towards where the hate comes from. And it's probably a good thing to know and to analyse so we can create change. But what I know is that that movement towards people has um, 
gives life and brings life. Mm. And that's what we need. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As opposed to constantly sort of struggling or do you mean do you mean being around negative people or I mean I couldn't tell you exactly why um you know homophobic people make public homophobic statements I don't know where that I don't know where that all comes from they will have their own reasons for that but I do think that over time that has been reflected in our laws, you know, that mm. has been reflected in our society. And of course people are going to believe that. And I also do think that, you know, people are hurting and Māori communities are hurting. And what they're often doing is trying to find some way of explaining it and pointing to something of why that could happen. And there are some people who think, oh, you know, the breakdown of the family and, oh, actually it's when people started being gay and we never had this. This is a modern, recent Pākehā thing and mm. this isn't us. And trying to grasp for ways of why our communities are in so much poverty and why we're struggling. And sometimes it ends up pointing fingers at each other and fighting against each other. And that's what that's what colonialism does, right? Yeah. And then whatever remaining natives are left, we just destroy each other and then we've done the job for them. Yeah. It's the modern cultural equivalent of giving giving tribes weapons to kill each other. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm not trying to be real bleak about this. No, I actually no, I, feel I, quite awful. But people feel like um like they are hated and like they are disgusting. And that is a really difficult, difficult thing to move through. And even for me, as someone who is quite publicly out as Takatapu, I often have had to have moments where I grapple with the ways that that hate has built homes within my own body and within my own self and realising that, oh my gosh, like the whole reason I do this or am like this is because of some distant survival or coping mechanism, which was ultimately about believing that I was hated and disgusting and unnatural and wrong. And how nice it would be to begin life without having that inside you. And how it's a corrosive effect on your spirit and your mind and your body. Like it just, it destroys you, you know. And our communities are rife with substance abuse and alcohol abuse and obviously suicidality and self-harm and all these things. But there's also all these little things that that you wouldn't even necessarily put a name to. Like I have a, like quite serious like work addiction issues and it's pretty much just from me trying to like work away my, you know, not just self-hate, but work. The idea in my head is that if I just work really, really hard, you know, I'm not going to be that yuck, unnatural, disgusting thing, you know. And that's like a really confronting thing to be able to have a conversation with yourself about that and think about all these habits that you've had over the years where you're like, it literally just stems from this this hate and disgust and this shame because I can talk about it. I can talk about it to you right now because I've made movements through that shame, but the majority of people have not. They have not and they are suffering alone and in shame and not talking to anyone and just sitting 
with that stigma and that hate inside themselves. And we've made great efforts. For, I love that you can get married here if you're same sex and so on. But for example, right now we're having a really big um, backlash against transgender communities going on. Um, and we have people who describe themselves as feminists um, being anti-transgender because mm. they believe that it impinges on their rights as women. And it's basically just transphobia and anti-trans rhetoric dressed up in a different kind of kind of outfit, really. Mm. And these have real impacts. They sit within us because we can't, especially in a heavy media-saturated world now, it's not just like our local community that we're worried about how they treat us. Mm. It's this huge global community and it's everywhere and it's all pervasive and it's constant. And I think that almost exacerbates and intensifies the possibility of that hate as well inside ourselves. And that's a lot for any one person to sit with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember sort of mild anxiety as a teenager living in a small town in the UK and it was you know completely different but but you're very this was in the sort of 80s and 90s and you sort of it's a small town and the anxiety stops at where the town mm. stops you know what I mean you're just sort of worried about the people that might see you walking down the street or you know that kind of thing but uh move that up and move that online say suddenly you're right it's seven billion people or judging you mm. comment. Yeah. very troubling indeed again i feel like i'm being very bleak no 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 <laughs> but um i don't feel like i can talk about takatapuitanga but also talking about the material realities that we have to live yeah and i love leaning into the beauty and the joy and and everything incredible that is to Māori tanga, but to me, my reclaiming of Māori tanga is because I see that there is things, there are problems in the world, and this is a way forward mm. through those problems. This is solutions, but it doesn't mean that we can just ignore the reality of what people are dealing with right now. Yeah. Is there anything you wish you learned or uh, if you could... If you could go back and talk to talk to younger younger Cassie, little Cassie, what hmm. anything you'd uh, pass on, pass back? I mean, I think I would just say things are going to be hard, but you will get through it. Yeah, and you are going to meet some unlikely guides and allies and friends, and and you will find love in many many places, and that will carry you forward. Um, and also to think about what pleasure means, I think, is really important because mm. I think that pleasure is the opposite of hate and pain and suffering. And we don't have a society that is very pleasure-focused, I don't think. And even I'm not very pleasure-focused. This is something I'm learning on as well and just how amazing it would be to be talking about the possibilities of relationships and love and connection and pleasure because there is there is so much there is so much to be had but you know sex education feels like a teenage pregnancy risk mitigation yeah. exercise and um, there is no moment 
that is even about our pleasure. And I think that, you know, that was very important, you know, pre-colonial. I think that pleasure was was really crucial, you mm. know. Um, and so, yeah, I think... I think it's thinking about that as as how to make way for pleasure in a world that is is so bleak mm. so often and you're going to feel like you can't do anything about it but um but there is still love and pleasure and and you need yeah. to move towards that. It's this yeah the shifting of the focus, eh? Yeah. Amazing. Well, let's try and that's a good positive uh <laughs> That's a good positive. We're moving, we're moving away from the bleakness. <laughs> um, misunderstandings about Takatapu. Are there any common misunderstandings? Just back to that word and, and, and what it. I think misunderstandings are that every Māori identifies as Takatapu, okay, and also, yep. as I've mentioned, but also I think in that is there's, I think, misunderstandings by Pākehā about where Māori are at in terms of their own Māori tanga and their Māoriness. And we're kind of reaching a point where it's okay to be Māori and in some places it's cool to be Māori. And there's there's an expectation that you're at this level and you're cool like this or you're here with that. But actually that's not... We're grappling with years of, of, of colonisation and we're not often at a particular level or place we are where we are, you know. Mm. And so takatapui is a word that has mostly been utilised by people who have access to um, takatapui communities. So um, I learnt that word for, from hanging with older takatapui and at big hui and and appreciating and honouring them and loving them and so wanting to wanting to be... Um, using those terms as well but I was really privileged in being able to even go to a hui that was a gathering that was full of takatapui um, so so yeah so to me it, it's not the same for everyone mm. and we shouldn't just assume that it is and to have um, humility I think it's really important for Pākehā to have humility towards Māori in terms of their their path and, and their journey around what all of this means. Um, so that's one. And then another big misunderstanding is that um, takatapui is actually just a Pākehā thing um, right. or is a European thing and being gay or transgender is just a, um, yeah, is a Pākehā thing. And, and so even within our own communities, policing each other on what is right or wrong which is obviously the hardest part because um I don't really care if you know some someone from the old male pal style brigade you know says points a finger at me and has an issue with me but if someone who is Māori um t- makes an attack on me based on my sexuality my identity then that like cuts straight to the core yeah, like yeah, that yeah. really hurts yeah. and so um yeah i guess the misunderstanding is 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 still the learning and healing that we need to do within our own communities to 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 realize actually this is a part of our history um whether we like it or not and and that's okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> Let's tell as many people as possible. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. queer sex wasn't just invented by Europeans. No, like, no, hell no, no, that would never happen. It's too good. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we've been trying to tuck that away behind the couch for, for years. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for doing this. No, thank it's you for inviting me in. 
Well, folks, I hope you loved hearing all about Indigenous gender and sexuality from the gorgeous Cassie Hartendorf. Um, if you want to watch their documentary called Te Kākano Aho, um, which is about the Takatapu experience, you can go to www.ngataonga.org.nz. I'll spell that for you, N-G-A-T-A-O-N-G-A.org.nz. Uh, yeah, it's an incredible little short documentary made by Loading Docs. And uh, this year, actually, 2021, Cassie was selected to give the Peter Wells Lecture um, in Pride 2021. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that um, might also be available online. But, yeah, just so you know, we were talking to a pretty fancy person. <laughs> um, pretty fancy. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, um, look, as you know, we're just starting out. Uh, this is our first series of podcasts, and we do have some amazing interviews. We really encourage you to check out the other ones, you know, Ending HIV, um, Raising Children and Non-Binary, uh, The Future of Sex Education, Asians and Sex, um, The History of Sex Work in New Zealand. We've got some incredible guests, so we really recommend you jump into those, and we would love to hear from you, the audience. We want to hear what you loved, what you hated. You know, give us your feedback and your ideas and the topics you want covered and the people we need to be talking to. Just check in with us with pictures or emails or voice recordings to hello at sexandspace.com. We would love to include them in upcoming episodes. And also you can follow us. There's nothing wrong with a good follow on there Facebook. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> Facebook and Instagram, um, which is at sexandspace.com. That's sexandspace, D-O-T-C-O-M. Yes, D-O-T-C-O-M. I'll get used to saying that. Um... If you enjoyed this podcast, or even any of the others, uh, and had any spare digital swipes, clicks, or any of that kind of stuff to go around, um, then leaving us a five-star review or a rating on the Apple Podcast would be amazing. Um, yeah, so we'll be trying to shout them out. Or no, we'll be definitely be shouting out those on some future episodes. So um, yeah, please keep them nice and sexy. A massive thanks to all our guests the amazing folks at the Armoury Recording Studios in Wellington, uh, to the team at String Theory, to Andrew, Tanya, Brandon, David and Richard for their amazing voices. And of course, many thanks to my amazing co-host, Jess Holly Bates. Mm, so welcome. And thank you to you for making it all the way to the end of another podcast. Join us next week. Bye. Bye. If you found some of this material a little challenging, keep coming back and we'll make it really challenging.